Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word and ask you to guide and lead us through as we look at this and show us what you'd have us to see from it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so tonight we're starting the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, it was originally called the second book of Kings uh, because originally you had 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 3 Kings, and 4 Kings. Uh, both of the kings were one book and both of the chronicles were one book and Samuel was broken up into two books. So that was the original formatting of, of these books of history that we're reading right now. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Samuel, just as we didn't know who wrote the book of Samuel. Uh, and basically, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel was a story of Saul and David's interaction with him. 2 Samuel is completely about David, uh, his entire reign when he becomes king, all the way to the time he is, dies and, and, and uh, appoints Solomon to be the ruler. First nine chapters are David consolidating the kingdom and, and showing David in pretty good light. He's, very, he's been a fairly righteous man during those, during those period. Uh, from 10 to 18, we had that middle, middle time when it is mostly filled with Bathsheba, Uriah, uh, uh, Amnon, and Absalom. <laughs> uh, all the problems David has. <laughs> And then uh, verses 19, uh, chapters 19 through 24 is his final years as he sets Solomon up to reign and, and uh, generally pretty things going fairly well for him. So that's the, that's the book in a nutshell. In his early years, he's, he starts out getting to be king of Israel, uh, Judah rather. Uh, goes through the wars that he has with uh, Saul's son, uh, Shibbetheth. And then he becomes king of all of Israel, the celebration of the ark returning, and then Meshibbetheth is honored, and Meshibbetheth is Jonathan's son, who David raised up and made, made basically royalty without being royalty. He got to live at the palace and eat, the, eat at the dinner and everything else that, that a prince would, would be able to do because David was longing to fulfill his uh, wish to, a promise to Jonathan to protect his family. So that is the, the book in a nutshell as we, as we look at it. And we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziglag, and it came to, even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head, and so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obscience. And David said to him, From whence come you? And he said, Out of the camp of Israel am I, am I escaped. And David said to him, How went the matter? I pray you, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How know you that Saul and Jonathan his son is dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when I looked, and he looked behind him, and he saw me, and called me, and, an, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who are you? And he answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, I pray you, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was upon his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and rent them and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his sons and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. All right. We're going to look at this, and I have said on occasions, uh, on many occasions, that there's a handful of verses in the Bible, places in the Bible, that people will look at and say, here's a contradiction. Now, this is one of those areas that people will point to and say that this is a contradiction. And do you know why it's a contradiction, apparent contradiction? In, in, in 1 Samuel 1, Saul fell upon his own sword. Oh, yeah. 
And now you've got this guy saying that he killed Saul. Very good. That's the answer. Yeah, he came. He's got the crown in his hand, the bracelets, and he's thinking he's going to get rewarded for David for killing his enemy. And that's the easy answer. Just because the Bible tells us what was said and what was done does not mean that it is saying that that was true. Okay? Saul fell upon his own sword. This man is going to David and trying to get rewarded. And he's figuring that David's going to reward him if he killed David's enemy and now David can be king. David's going to be happy, reward him, give him all kinds of wealth. And we're going to find out that his reward was to die. Didn't Saul want this other guy to kill him? He, he wanted his armor bearer to kill him. Fell on his own sword. Right. No. No, you probably shouldn't kill yourself, but it's not a good thing. Yeah. So this is one of those things that we point out to you because this is one of the places where we see this is there's an error there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's yeah. The guy was trying to get a reward by by lying and and you know telling David a story. And so you guys hit it right on the head. It's an easy, easy answer. Uh, but believe me, I've met Christians that couldn't even come up with the idea that this guy was lying. They go, oh, yeah, there's a contradiction there. Uh, but to me, it's a very obvious answer. But I just wanted to bring, as we come across these things, I want to bring them out, that these are where we're at, and, and look at them. All right, so let's start this, start at verse 1. And it came to pass after the death of Saul that David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode in Ziglag for two days. Apparently, even though Ziglag was destroyed and burnt to the ground, there's some kind of shelter still in Ziglag. Of course, a lot of their shelters are tents, so it's not that hard to put them back up. But he's now living in Ziglag again. And so we're about two days past the battle with Saul. And David hasn't heard the news yet. He's, he's returned. And remember, they got all their stuff. And they got all their wives, all their children, all their, all their flocks. And now they're back at Ziglag. And David's probably wondering what he's going to do at this point because uh, the Philistines are at open war with Israel. And he doesn't know what's going to happen at this point. And verse 2 says, And it came to, even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and the earth upon his head. And so it was that he came to David that he fell to the earth and, and did upsance, which is bowed down and worshipped. So this man comes, clothes all tattered and torn and all muddied from the battle and meets David and basically falls on his face and, and you know, gives David, David honor. And uh, we're going to see that this guy has, you know, as we saw, as we read in it, he's got, he's got other things on his mind here that he's, that he's looking for. And uh, David said, when did, where did you come from? And he said, I escaped out of the camp of Israel. In other words, I ran. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting way. He said, I escaped. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that uh, if you've studied any kind of military history and everything, more often than not, people run away from battle. More people run away from a battle to get away from battle than actually die in battle. Even in modern days, there's, uh, you go into battle and people get scared and they run. Uh, which is why the military tries so hard to get people to follow orders. And that's the whole purpose of boot camp is to get them to obey orders. Even when an order makes no sense, like stand here and what in front of the machine gun being fired at you. Uh, so, and this guy's run from battle and he's run straight to David, or at least to David. And David, of course, is eager for this, for this uh, news. He, he knows that the Philistines were going into battle with Israel, and uh, he was supposed to go into battle. And you know, remember we talked a lot about that, how he was going to go into battle as the bodyguard of the king of the Philistines and was sent away. And he's got mixed feelings about this. He was going to go to battle against Israel, and now he's probably hoping that Israel beat the Philistines uh, because he, he still loves Israel. Because even if when they come to battle, a lot of people are going to die. And this shows you that Saul's sin cost all of his son's lives and thousands of his own people's lives are going to die because his sin and God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. And it wasn't just Saul who died when he 
when his life was taken, it was all of his sons and thousands of people in battle. David's going to have the same problem in this book when he does his sin. Thousands of people are going to die because of his, because of his sin. And uh, we, we talk so much about this. Sin has consequences, and the consequences are always greater than we think they're going to be, always further than we ever think they're going to be, and cost more people a penalty than we'd ever dreamed they would be. Uh, sin never affects just the individual sinner. Always affects many. Adam and Eve is the greatest example of all. Their sin affected everybody. Even the animals. <laughs> Even the animals and the earth. Yeah. You know, you want to talk about something that was really serious. It, it affected all of mankind, all of, all of the animal kingdom, the weather, the earth, everything. <laughs> you know, our weeds and everything else. Uh, you know, their sin was a pretty severe one that had long ramifications. Uh, Saul's sin of not destroying the Amalekites is going is had big effect already, and has had another effect when his sons all die and people die in battle. David's going to have the problem when he goes when he sins, or uh, his the sword's not going to leave his family, and his family's got all kinds of trouble with rebellions and and uh, incest and rape and all these other things that are going to happen in his family. David numbers the people and God says, okay, you, you have a choice, you know, and he gives them three different choices and they all involve hurting the people, which if you love your people and you care for your people, that is really a hard thing to do, is see, your, see the people you love and care for getting hurt. So David's got, David's got these problems and we see this over and over again. Sin hurts. And sin hurts deeper than we ever think or, or, or expected to. And so this man now comes to David, and David asks, well, how did everything go? And, the people, and he goes, the people have fled from the battle, and many of the people are fallen and, and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his sons, are dead also. In other words, David, the battle goes terrible. Uh, the king is dead, the sons are dead, the people are dying, and they're running away. And anybody who's ever, you know, has a heart like David for, for battle, that's one of the worst things you could hear. The army is running away. Which means, and David already understands, the Philistines have won. All right, the Philistines have won, the king is dead, Israel is in total disarray. Their leader is dead. And they've been running from the enemy. Which is going to break David's heart right there and right there because all of a sudden now he's going to go, okay, God, now is now the time. I'm sure this is what he's thinking. Is now the time that I get to go be king? I get to go be king of no nation. <laughs> okay. Uh, and David said to the young man, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Natural question, you know. Well, how do you know? You know, were you that close to the king and you didn't protect the king? Uh, you know, how do you know? Didn't you know? How did you know that this happened? And the young man said, I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariot and the horsemen followed hard after him, and he looked behind him, and he saw me, and he called me, and I answered, here am I. At this point, David's got to be kind of wondering about this guy. You know, what, what is he standing that close to the king for? And it almost sounds, when it, with his, his lie that he's trying to tell about wanting to ask him to be killed is exactly pointed out what he asked there. So it is kind of apparent that this guy was somewhat close. He heard enough of the truth to weave it into his story and just bend it just a little bit. Instead of it being asked of the armor bearer, it was asked of him and instead of saying, no, I, I will not touch God's anointed, he goes, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just tell him. I uh, you know, and uh, you know, he says, you know, I answered, I was in the Amalekite, and he said, stand by here and slay me, for my life is yet whole, and I'm, you know, basically he's dying. And Saul, we've talked about in the last chapter, in the last book, of the last, the last chapter of the last book, didn't want to be taken captive, because they would abuse his body and then kill him. So he figured if he wanted to, if he was going to have to be dead, he wanted to be dead quick. And that's why he asked his armor bearer, slay me, you know, we would, if he, was, if he had actually seen the Amalekite, he probably would have asked the Amalekite to slay him too. I mean, he, he wanted a quick death rather than being tortured by the enemy and put on display. Because what does the enemy do? Any, any number of things. What did, what did they do to Samson? They took and they 
plucked his eyes out and used him for sport and made him, you know, made him uh, grind wheat like an animal. Uh, when the Assyrians took the king of Egypt, uh, king of Israel, they took him, they drug him behind on the caravan, made him walk, which was bad enough for the king who wasn't used to walking. When they got there, they slew his sons in front of him, in front of him and, and gouged his eyes out. So that the last thing he saw was his sons dying. Uh, you know, this is the type of stuff that happened in those days. Well, it was a big deal. You know, when you took away their vision, that was a big deal. But they also did many other things that were just as, just as bad. Uh, so we see here, Saul is wanting to be died, and this guy seems to have been close enough to hear the conversation with Saul and his armor bearer, which kind of makes me wonder why he was so close and why he was, what he was doing in that battle, because the Amalekites are no friend of Israel, and they're not particular friends of the Philistines either. So maybe he was just up there trying to get spoil, which is quite possible, because uh, we're going to see what he did, you know, what he came. Then in verse 10, he says, I, I, I slew him. <laughs> you know, I, I, I slew him because he couldn't live much longer. You know, basically saying David was a mercy killing. He was going to die, and so I, I just put him out of his mi misery. And that's what he says in verse 10. I, 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 I was sure that he could not live after after he was fallen, so I took the crown upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and I brought him, brought him to you. So at this point, he's got a crown and a royal bracelet, which is why I have a feeling this guy was just out there to get spoil. Uh, he was out in the battle to get spoil, not to have. And David's action is really going to surprise this guy because it says David took hold of his clothes and rent them and also the men that were with him. And that is when you rent your garments, you were in you were in mourning, you were in shock, and David's, David really did love Saul. Uh, and it's kind of hard to believe when Saul's chasing him all over the countryside trying to kill him, but David seemed to have had a great love for Saul. And of course, Jonathan's dead too, which is a big part of this, and he's mourning the death of the king. And they all mourned and, and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son and the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. David was in distress. And as I said, you know, he's in one side of him is probably thinking, okay, God, you made me king and there's no, no nation to be king over at the moment. Okay, uh, so many people have fallen. The people are, are scattered and the Philistines have conquered the land. And he doesn't know because remember, we ended up in the last chapter saying they've conquered all the cities in the middle of Israel and they're living in them. David doesn't quite know the extent of how far they've been defeated, but he knows the king is dead and the people have been running away. And as a general and as a leader, he knows what that means. They're going to take every city that they can get as well. So David is looking at this and saying, okay, my best, my best friend is dead. His father is dead, who I, who I honor as king. The people have been, have been killed. And... A bunch of cities have been taken. You know, and then it's exactly what I, I kind of almost picture, once he's done with the mourning on this, he's probably thinking, okay, God, I'm the king of what? Okay, uh, there's, no, there's no, no, no place to be king of at the moment. Uh, now we're going to find that they're going to gather back up. I mean, but, but on the one side, he says, okay, we have a shattered country, and, you're, and, I, and I'm the king of this shattered country because you, you've given me, but the people haven't made me king yet. So there's all kinds of problems ahead for David as he looks at what's going to happen in the near future. But his first big battle thing is he's got to get enough people, he's got to become king and have enough people to drive the Philistines out of Israel and try to consolidate his kingship because he doesn't know what's going to happen at this point because there is no king, the king is dead, all the, all the main sons are dead. There's a, hand, there's a couple of his minor sons that are still around, we're going to find out because one of them is going to be promoted to king in the, in, of Israel outside of the one tribe that David gets. And David's going to fight for quite a, about eight years trying to get consolidate the kingdom. Um, and so David is in this place, and they mourn and they fast on, until the evening. Verse 13. And David said to the young man that told him, Whence are you? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. And David said, How was it? 
How were you not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy God's, anoint, God's anointed? And David called one of his young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him and he died. And David said unto him, Your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. All right. So after they've been fasting all day, mourning for Saul, David comes up to the guy and starts asking him again, Well, who are you? And he goes, Well, I'm a son of a stranger. I'm an Amalekite. I'm, I'm an alien in, in this land, but I, I'm, I'm here. And David asks him a very question. Why were you not afraid to kill God's anointed? This is something that is very serious. David took this very serious, as we know, on two occasions given in the scripture, he could have killed Saul. And there were probably others, but two when Saul was completely at David's mercy. One, he's fast asleep, and David could have killed him in his sleep. Another one, he's going to the bathroom and could have killed him. And David did not kill him on either one of those occasions because David understood that when God was ready to take him out, God would take him out. And David, I think, expected him either to die in battle, which would have been an honorable death for a, for a king or, and a warrior, or to die of some sickness or old, old age. Either way, God would have ordained it. So he asked the man, how is it that you dared to strike God's anointed? And this is something that we need to be very careful of in ourselves, even in our day, because we are to honor authority, whether it's our, our kings, our governors, and, and whatever, or even leaders within businesses and, and within the church. We're to honor those authorities and give them the position because no leader is in position unless God puts them there. Now, we in America have this advantage. Every, every few years, we get to vote for our leaders. But even then, God is still in control, in control of those votes and in control of who's going to be the leader and who got in position to run in the first place. And so we need to be very careful and be praying for our leaders, lifting them up, and not trying to assassinate their character and, and harm them because God does not take it lightly. This young man is going to pay the price for touching God's anointed. And David's going to issue that, pri that, that price. Sometimes it takes a little longer for that price to hand that came, come out. Absalom's going to come up against David and rebel against David, and he's going to die. All right, we see this over and over. When people rebel, God defends his leaders. And so David has him executed because he dared. And David's voice is very, very interesting. In, in verse 16, he says, Your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Now, the, I do not know whether David believed this man when he said he killed, killed uh, Dave, uh, Saul, or if he just said, you killed Saul, you know, you killed Saul, so I'm gonna, you deserve to die because you raised your hand against the king. And I don't know, there's nothing in there to tell us whether he actually believed the man or not. This guy is trying, in his mind, from a worldly point of view, Saul is David's enemy. If I've killed Saul, David's going to reward me. Whether it's going to be with position or wealth or some kind of reward. And this is the problem with the, the difference between the world and godly people. Because we think totally different the world sometimes thinks they're going to get by doing things that we would never ever consider doing. And then they look at us and think we're strange anyway because we don't do what they do. And they expect us to. All right? One of the things I've learned over the years is when people are sinners, they believe that people will do the same type of sin. We can do it as Christians too where we kind of sometimes think that, well, we're loving and kind, so others will be loving and kind. Very dangerous place to be when you're, we're walking in this world because they're not going to be that way. But uh, you'll, you'll hear it. You'll hear people, well, everybody lies. Well, that tells me something about that person. They're probably a pretty big liar. You, know, you get somebody, well, everybody steals. That tells me a lot about that person. That means that they're probably a thief. Maybe not a real big thief, but they have no problem stealing stuff. And that's what their words are telling me. And... People really do believe that everybody does just what they do. This man 
thinks that, you know, well, hey, if I, if I killed my, if somebody killed my enemy, I'd give him a reward if it was in my power. So this, this David, he's going to give me a reward. And because he said that he had done this, David says, okay, you're dead. And it's your own words that have convicted you. All right. So at this point, David, I kind of believe at this point, David believed him. You know, you killed, you killed Saul, you're dead. And he's kind of hedging his bet. You know, by your own words, you said you killed him. So now punishment has been met because David now is acting as king. You know, he's been anointed king. He's not really king yet, but he said, okay, I'm going to be the leader. I'm the judge. You, by your own words, you killed him. We don't need any other witnesses because you witnessed against yourself. Yeah, put his foot in his mouth, just about everything else, too. Yeah, consequences for Usually not quite that severe, but in this case, yeah. you know, but again, it, it does show us that sin has consequence, and sometimes the consequences are much more than we think they're going to be, and this man's consequence for lying was pretty bad. He, he lost his life, having thought that he was going to get a reward. Self-incriminated, yeah. All right, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan and his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow, and behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph the mountain, you, you mountains of Gilboa, let there not be dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor the fields of offering, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as uh, though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and their death, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet, with other, with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? O oh, Jonathan, you, you were slain in, in, your high, in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been unto me. Your love to me was wondrous, wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So David, in very typical fashion, being a song, a singer, <laughs> writes a song. And uh, in, he, he says it lamented over them. And he said, teach this to the children of Judah. They, he did not want King Saul and Jonathan to be forgotten. You know, what an honor. You know, David really, even in their death, honored them, which really shows that he was not looking to exalt himself at all, which we saw over and over again. You know, uh, we, we talked about this in, that, in 1 Samuel. Saul's chasing David all over the place. David's a military general and genius probably could have taken Saul in battle at any time and killed Saul in battle and been able to justify fighting against him. And yet he kept leaving and running away, moving away from Saul, never, never engaging him in battle and probably would have beat Saul if he had gone into battle with him. And yet he would not because his heart was not to exalt himself. And so many times we see people in the world especially, but even in churches sometimes that want to exalt themselves. You know, I want this title, I want this position because I want everybody to look at me. When, when I was in a church and interviewing people for deacon, the last thing I really ever wanted to hear somebody, well, I've just been wanting to be a deacon all my life. I want to be in charge of something. That usually was a red flag to us that that person really wasn't a deacon material. Uh, because it's like, okay, why are you wanting this? Are you wanting it for the, stat, you know, for the supposed status? Or are you wanting it to be a minister that the position is? And David was one who says, I just want to minister. He went out, with, he went out and led Saul's armies into great victories, which would have kept Saul in power. By going out and fighting for Saul, he was keeping Saul in power because he was defeating the enemies. 
and he was willing to step down and just be the singer for him and, and calm his nerves. You know, he was just in love with Saul and helping Saul out. He was not looking to lift himself up and to get himself in a position that says, look, hey, look at me, I, I, I'm anointed king, I should be king, and to do this, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take down Saul. No, he did everything he could to help Saul and not to have to kill Saul. And you know, he says, let the people sing this song, teach it to them, make it, the, make it in the top 10 in the nation. You know, get out there and sing this song. And then he says, and it says that this was written in the book of Jasher. We have no idea what that book is. <laughs> okay. It's not one that made it into the Bible, and we don't really know where, where, what, what that book is. And there's lots of books referenced in the Bible that aren't scripture. All right. And all through these, all through these chapters, we're going to, and this was written in the book of such and such, and, you know, book of such and such, or the book of the battles of such and such. And we don't have most of those books. Uh, so it was just a statement. And again, the Bible records things as they were, as they happened, not necessarily saying, go, now go find this book because it's so important. It just, the song was written in there. Uh, it was recorded, recorded in, that, in that book. And it says in verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places, how the mighty are fallen. You know, and this is kind of, you know, do you think this would be your attitude if your enemy had just been slain the beauty of Israel has, has, been, has fallen. Uh, you know, and this is kind of a very interesting statement, and it really does show David's attitude toward Saul and his family. Number one, Saul is his father-in-law. Remember, one of his wives is Michael, Saul's daughter. Okay, so he really wasn't looking to destroy the royal family of Saul, even though he was anointed king. And he knew that it would happen he wasn't looking to make it happen. And says, Oh, how the beauty of Israel have fallen in the high places. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. In other words, he's saying, don't let this be published by the enemy. Don't let the enemy rejoice at the death of Saul. And this, remember, this is what Saul's original complaint was. I don't want to be made fun of. And what did they do with his armor when they found it? Does anybody remember what they did with it? They put it on display in the temple. They, they published it in the streets. And they put it, hung his head and body on the wall, the wall and uh, Jabesh Gilead uh, went, and re went and rescued it. David is saying, don't go public. Don't let it be published. Don't let it be published. And there's two facts that are not to be published. Right? The first one is the king is dead. But the second reason not to publish this is because when the king died in, in a battle, that meant that their, the enemy's God defeated the God of that, of that king in their mind. Okay, and we talked about that. That's their mindset. Okay, we won. That means our God was stronger than their God because if their God was stronger than our God, we could not have won. And that was their logic. Now, God's logic was Saul needs to die so David can become king. So I'm going to let them win this battle. And God does a lot of things like that. Let me, let's make it look like we have been defeated so that I can, I can be shown myself to be exalted. When Jesus died on the cross, that looked like one of the worst events that could possibly happen. God died. You know, and man had killed him. What an awful event. Satan and the demons were probably rejoicing at the beginning of that. And then he resurrected, and, they're not, and they haven't rejoiced ever since. All right? But the people looking on say, well, this is crazy. How can, how can God die in it? And you want to call that, and then you want to say it's victorious. And, you know, and this happens oftentimes where God uses people, nations, to judge his people. And not showing that he is weak, but saying, I'm going to allow you. And, and God will say, I will use this man and this, this country to punish my people, and then I'll punish them for touching my people. <laughs> uh, and so David is saying, don't publish it in the streets. Don't let the uncircumcised uh, triumph. In verse 21 says, the mountains of Gilboa, let there not be dew, neither rain upon you, 
nor fields of off for offerings for, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away and the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. So he's saying, okay, God, don't even, don't, on Gilboa, don't even let it rain. Now, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't find out in, on research whether this actually happened, that there was no rain on Gilboa or if this is just going to be poetry. David is known as a prophet, so it is quite possible that no rain fell on Gil, Gilboa for a while and that it withered away. And I have to look into that. I really didn't think about that when I was studying it. I, don't know, I just took it as poetry at the time, but it just kind of struck me now with David being prophetic. Maybe, maybe that uh, area did not literally have rain for a period of time um, and, and wither away. And it says, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. You know, David really understood Saul's position. Saul was the anointed king of Israel. And David understood that. And he also understood the power of the anointing. You know, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit if, we're, if we are Christians. We have power and authority that we sometimes forget about. Because God dwells in us. We are the children of God. He has made us his adopted children. And we have power through that anointing. Now, that doesn't mean we can just go out and heal every single person, but there is power behind having God living in us. And so often we live as if we have no power, and this is why I'm really encouraging us. We want to be praying for these people on our list for salvation, and I'm really expecting God to bring salvations. I'm looking forward to how many people are going to get saved. This year, next year, the 20 years from now, whatever it takes to happen, but I'm looking forward to what God's going to do when we pray and we lift up these names to, to God for salvation and see God make changes. You know, I want to see God save people in this town that nobody thinks would ever get saved. That will bring revival in a heartbeat when they go, that person got saved? That person's changed? They're not drinking anymore. They're not drugging anymore. They're not dealing whatever it is that they do that everybody looks at them and says, well, how could that person get saved? And they get saved? What a change that can happen. David understood the power of the anointing and he understood that Saul was anointed and he is really bringing this song up and saying, don't forget Saul. God made him king. Don't forget him. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, and the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of the Saul returned not empty. In other words, he said they went out victoriously. Now, we know that it's not, this is a little bit of uh, poetic license here because Saul has been running away from the battle. But David is saying he went into battle and they killed a lot of people. And it was a good thing. And he says Jonathan didn't turn back, which I think that was his real hope is that Jonathan hadn't turned back, that Jonathan died in battle, and it probably was that Jonathan died in battle. Verse, verse 23, and Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. And you know, he is just lifting them up. He, you know, he's, uh, he, you know, lovely, pleasant, you know, in, in their lives, uh, their death they were not divided. In other words, they died together. And that's quite an honor in one sense to die with, with near your friends if you're going to have to die. And the military even have that mentality today. You know, when you're with your group of your, your people and you die in your, with your brothers, it, there's a greater honor than running or dying alone. And it says they were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. There's a lot of poetry here. You know, David, David is writing a song to, to lift them up. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet and other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. And apparently Saul was a person who had led them to some prosperity. This is what David's saying. Uh, scarlet, that is a color of royalty. It was very expensive uh, to use scarlet because their dye for scarlet, they had to gather a whole bunch of worms, uh, a particular type of worm, crush, dry them, crush them, turn them into a red powder, powder, then mix it with water, and then dye the clothes. 
And so scarlet was of extreme value. It was not, but yeah, I mean, he says that you've been clothed in scarlet, which is a very, and he goes, and other delights. Now, again, I don't know if this is hyperbole for the song or was Saul really bringing that much prosperity into, into the place. And it's possible that they were, that much prosperity was being pro brought in. Uh, David definitely sang it and the people sang it. So, and who put ornaments of gold upon your apparel. In other words, he's decked you out. Ladies, there's so much money out there that you're, you're getting to wear the best of the best, which usually is toward the final stage of a kingdom just before it starts collapsing. There usually is a great wealth in the place and people being living in opulence. And this is, he's really saying, you guys, you guys lived in the top of the heap. You're wearing red clothes, you've got other, other beautiful garments, and you've got gold on your, on your, that you're wearing gold. And ladies, it's you wearing the gold, not just the men going out to battle, but you've got your gold as well. You, you're getting to wear the finest dresses, the finest clothing. And this is what Saul brought in. And I believe that it had to be somewhat true because David's writing a song and he's encouraging everybody to sing. And, he, and the last thing you want when you're writing a song is uh, lie, lie, lie. You know, it's, you know, there's got to be truth in your songs, even if you expand upon them a little bit. You know, people have to at least say, well, yeah, it's mostly true. You can't go, go out and write a song that's just a pack of lies and hope that everybody buys it. So David's you know, going, look what he did. Saul brought this wealth to you. And we're going to find out later on, David's going to bring greater wealth and Solomon's really going to bring great wealth to the, to the people of Israel. And one of the things that I, that's, they had so much silver in Israel that it said it was no more value than the sand. Okay, that's a lot of silver to make it that worthless. And you just go out and get some sand and you have, you have the same equivalent, you know. So in other words, silver was worthless. Uh, you know, silver's never been as, as worth, you know, as much as gold and other things, but it's never been worthless other than, other than under Solomon. And, it, you know, they were, in Solomon's day, they were making things out of gold. You know, you th you, things that they used, it wasn't, you know, so gold wasn't even all that great a value to him because he had gold everywhere, and he lined the entire temple with gold. All right? And gold was everywhere. They made shields of gold for decorations. They made, you know, you know, David had brass shields made, and Solomon has gold shields made. <laughs> and a lot of things. Yeah, he just had gold everywhere. He had silver everywhere. You know, so we see great wealth being obtained by Israel during that period of time. And so he's saying, you know, Saul, Saul brought this. He's, you know, he's made us wealthy. He's got you all well clothed. I get confused. Solomon is Saul. Uh, no. Solomon's not Saul. No, Solomon is Solomon. But Solomon came after David. Right. Solomon is the one that got the greatest wealth of Israel. Oh, I see. David's son. Yeah. Saul started getting wealth for Israel. David increases that wealth, and Solomon really increases that wealth. And he, he's at the peak of their, their wealth and, and, and prosperity. And in Solomon's days, they owned all of Israel that they were supposed to or as close to it that they've ever had in their history. Well, we don't know yet on how, it doesn't really tell us how far down they went because they haven't, the Philistines haven't taken every city in Israel. They've taken a great swath of cities, but they haven't taken it all the way to the south and all the way to the north. Remember, Israel goes all the way up to Dan all the way down, you know, all the way down, and the Philistines kind of took land in the middle. And so that's going to be a problem for them. But this is at the time that the two were divided, Judah Not at this point. Okay. That's not going to happen. The, the division's not going to happen until Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. Okay, that's just bad for it. Huh? Bad for Really dumb. He listens to the wrong advisors. Uh, if he had just lowered the taxes like the people asked for, he probably would have never divided the kingdom. But God had already known that that was going to happen. So. So, so the Philistines kind of just picked that one part right in there? Yeah, right in the center. Yeah. Right in the center there. Uh, so the, the, the 
the country is kind of divided at the moment. <laughs> Uh, not officially, but it's divided because an enemy is in the middle, the middle portion. Then he goes on one more time in verse 20. Oh, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Oh, Jonathan, you were slain in your high places. So he's again lamenting. And now he's going to switch from Saul to Jonathan. And verse 26 is one of the verses that the homosexuals love to take out of context and love to Love to, love to use. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been unto me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. No, it's, but this is, there's, oh, see, they go right there. See, it's, you know, they had, and, you know, but there is a bond between men that can be deeper than anything that they can find, even with another woman at times. And it has nothing to do with homosexuality. It is just a male bonding that happens. And military is well known for that kind of bonding, where these guys have put their lives in each other's hands, and they protected each other. And there's a bond that's deeper than even family bonds with those guys. They would go, they would go to each other and help each other on an instant. They get called in the middle of the night and they'd be there to help their brother and because of that deep male love for each other that has nothing to do with sex. And this is the type of love David's talking about. Yeah, well, that's another one that they will try to use because of the whole idea of sex drawing together on the soul level. So, well, if you, well, that's just it. If you start, once you start with the idea of trying to justify where you want to be, you will twist all of that. And again, the male bonding of brothers that are defending one another, that are, are putting their life on, on the line is, a, is virtually as deep as any of the heterosexual married bond that brings the soul together in that way. You know, we are people that join together and true deep friendships join together at a soul level. All right, and you know, especially with marriage and everything, literally the souls are joined together and that's why a divorce rips souls and causes so much damage to people. It doesn't just split people back in because they were made one by God and when they rip that apart, it literally rips. It doesn't rip at the original place. It's a jagged edge. And when you meet people who have been divorced, they have jagged edges on the, on the edges toward that person that they have had their life ripped by. And, they, and they're hurt. And there's a, and there's a hurt in the, that they bring into the, any other relationship. That hurt goes in, that jagged rip goes into every other relationship that they, they get into. And... You know, that's why it's so serious. That's why God says this is a serious thing. I have made you one. Don't tear it apart. And when Jesus, when the, when the Pharisees, remember, asked Jesus, well, why did Moses command that we to, should issue a, a bill of divorce? Well, first off, they took that out of context because Moses said only in the case of adultery in the first place. And what was Jesus' answer? It's because of your hard heart that God allows that. Because you're not willing to be gracious and merciful for that. So we will give you the out because of your lack of love and compassion that you're feeling. And basically, he's rebuking them. He says, God's heart is, even, is not even for the divorce to happen. And God has been that way with Israel. He said, Israel, you are my wife. I have made you, made you one. And then there's a particular, and I can't remember where it's at, because one place he goes, you know, show me my bill of divorce that you keep going away from me. I have never divorced you. You've left me, but I have not divorced you. And he's going to go, I'm bringing you back. Which is the whole book of Hosea, the picture when Hosea is to go, goes out and he marries a prostitute so that he can be the picture of God's love for Israel. And he's bringing her back and not divorcing her as he had every right to by the law. And he shows God's love and brings her back and brings her back and brings her back. You know, and so we kind of diverge here, but just when we get these kind of verses, these are the verses that they kind of use to say, well, you know, because David and Jonathan is a big one that they try to say that they were homosexuals and, and all of this. You know, David loved a lot of women, so uh, he, uh, 
but they had this bond. They loved. They had this love that was was deep because they had gone to battle with each other. They had protected each other from from death so many times that there was a deep uh, uh, knitting of their souls together. That because their life had been depending on each other, and then he goes, "How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perish?" So we have this song that David does to build up Saul, Jonathan. And it's amazing to me, he wants the people to remember them. He doesn't, because it would be really easy for him to say, okay, just forget Saul and Jonathan, I'm king now, you know, forget about them. That's the world's way of doing things. Okay, I'm in charge now, forget, forget the past. Everything, everything the other person did, get, get rid of it, get, you know, get them out of your mind as we're, we're going forward from this point and forget them. David's going, don't forget them. <laughs> Saul was very mean to him, and yet, and yet he's honoring Saul. But he ended up, remember, he's ended up on a fairly good note with Saul because when the last time he could have killed Saul, Saul quit chasing him. Now, David did leave the country to make sure that Saul didn't come back after him. But remember, Saul at that point said, David, my son, I've wronged you. For the first time, Saul had actually admitted you know, wrong, and it seems to have been true repentance from Saul on that last particular one, because he stopped chasing him and quit going after him. Apparently, he was well. From from this song, he's been very good for the people. Uh, this song says, you know, hey, you know, women, you've been, you know, you've got really nice clothes. You've got, you know, basically, he's saying, you, everybody is well off. You know, look at look at what Saul has done for you. And uh, he's not trying to tear Saul down. He's not trying to make people, you know, look bad, you know, make himself look good by making Saul look bad. He's lifting up Saul and saying, rejoice. You had a good king. Even though he wasn't the best king and he didn't obey God and there were other things going on. And I'm only judging because there's nothing really about the welfare of the people until this song is sung. And again, it is a song (laughs) and it could have poetic license on it, but you can't stretch a song too far, especially historical-based song, you can't stretch it too far in the day that it, that it happened. Now, if David had written this 30 years later, then we could say, yeah, he's made up, you know, he could have made up anything, but he's making up a song right after these guys have died. Three days after they're dead, he's making up a song celebrating the life of Saul. It has to be pretty close to reality. Otherwise, people are going to go, David. What are you? Are you, are you? are you high on drugs or something? You know, we don't. You know, we, we don't have all this stuff. You know, so it has to be a song that somehow reflects adequately and correctly what was going on. Otherwise, it would never take off. Even if David, the the, the music, musician, was the one that wrote it, it's not going to take off if it's too far from the truth. And so we see. So I'm going to go just from this that Saul has done some good for the people. He has brought some form of prosperity to the people, and the people have grown from it. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come and look at your, your word. Lord, help us to learn from David's life to honor people and not to exalt ourselves and to lift them up and just to be able to edify and build up. Lord, if there's people listening that don't know you, we ask that they will accept that they're a sinner and come to Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.